Welcome back to the OPEX podcast where fitness is explained. I am your host, Robbie Burke, and I am joined on today's show by Sean Mishka, the Movement Miyagi. On this episode, Sean and I discuss many topics, including his background and his influences. Sean and I get into a deep conversation about all things skill acquisition. Here we cover a ton of concepts that are fully outlined in the show notes. Towards the end of the show, I asked Sean about the biggest lessons he has learned so far in his career and life. I asked Sean to give the viewers and listeners his top life advice and resources. I asked Sean to give us his top and current book recommendations. I asked Sean if he only had one year left to live, how would he spend that year? And finally, I asked Sean the big question. If he could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who would he invite and why? Guys, as with every other episode up until now, this was another fantastic show. I know you're really going to enjoy it. Stay with us. Sean Miska, we are recording and we're live. First of all, your name is Super Coolwood. <laughs> I love that name. <laughs> Sweet. Where, where is that name from? You know, everyone in my family, because they all pronounce it differently and they all pronounce it different literally every time they utter it, my dad included, you know, God rest his soul. Uh, one moment he would tell me it's Polish, the next moment he would tell me it's German. I don't think anybody really knows at this point. Um, that's why I think it can be pronounced any different way and, and we don't really concern ourselves with it. And hence the reason I just kind of go with the flow when anyone pronounces it any different way. But I pronounce it Mishka. Uh, we'll, we'll pretend that that's Polish and we'll go from there. Sadly, sadly. So Sean, give us the background story about yourself. So uh, I think, uh, you know, for someone, anyone who knows, you know, your current sort of uh, specialty and skill acquisition, they may be surprised to realize you were a, a former bodybuilder in a previous life. Yeah, it was my previous life, Robbie. You know, for me, I I got into bodybuilding. Most people see that as my former life, and they're like, well, you must still have a lot of reflection of your bodybuilding experience and training um, in what you do now with NFL players. And, and mostly it's just a reflection of who I am as a character and what my personality actually is. So I just happened to get into bodybuilding because I was really good at it. Um, you know, I was really strong as a, as a young gentleman and, uh, I was competing in powerlifting, um, beating adult men when I was in high school, uh, at powerlifting without really having to try all that hard at a very, very early age, 14, 15, 16 years old. Um, even though my passion was in sport, I just happened to not be all that good at sport in comparison to that, which what I was at powerlifting and then later on at bodybuilding. So I got into bodybuilding mostly because I was good at it. You know, most people, uh, when I retired from bodybuilding, now it would be uh, what would be, uh, let's see, 12 or 13 years ago. I haven't touched a weight since. I literally not have touched a weight since besides moving weights uh, and spotting my guys when we do our auxiliary or strength training work. But the thing that I was always fascinated about was actually truly sport performance and and underlying that of course as we're about to probably talk about uh throughout this podcast is the movement and the movement skill that uh underlies or underpins that performance in sport those were the things i was fascinated about 
but again, just happened to be really good at bodybuilding. So um, I, I did that for a significant period of time until my body really started to kind of break down and shut down. You know, at five foot seven, you're not really meant to be 280 pounds, you know, walking around with 34 inch quads, you know. I was like a, you know, those old weebles, they, they wobble, but they don't fall down type of thing, you know. That being said, I was still pretty functional in the whole scheme of things. I could do the splits. I, I did the splits on stage. I could do a backflip. I did backflips on stage. I did these things. I, I just wasn't overly skillful from a movement standpoint, and it just wasn't really fulfilling me either. Mm -hmm. The only thing I really cared about was being better than everyone else at something. And I know that sounds really egotistical, but that's really what drove me each and every day in bodybuilding. It wasn't, you know, a certain look or appeal uh, on an appearance, hence the reason I haven't touched any weight since that. And all I do for training now is, is as we said at the onset before we got on air, uh, all I do is train uh, for movement and movement skill now to be able to sort of give my guys the most representative look that I possibly can. Yeah, I heard you say on Mike Robinson's podcast, you were like, yeah, I kept bodybuilding until uh, my body like, just started to hate me. And you're like, I gained weight way too fast. Yeah, you know, I went from, so I won a few state championships here in uh, the United States at 19 years old, 20 years old, 21 years old. And I was uh, anywhere from 160 to 180 pounds when I won those. Once you start to go up in levels, of course, certain things are demanded of your body at the bodybuilding level. And, uh, you know, before I knew it, I was competing at 225, 230, 240, you know. And, and once that number kept creeping up, and again, based on my stature and my size, again, five foot seven isn't all that tall, um, you know, that, that then my body, again, just started saying, yes, now, Sean, enough is enough here. So at 25, 26 years old, uh, it really, truly was enough, and, and I realized I had to go down a different route, and finally I could actually pursue my passion, which is what I'm doing each and every day right now. Sweet, sweet. So, Sean, question I really want to ask, and I, I can kind of, like, again, it's like that book, The Four Agreements, Never Make Assumptions, but I can assume who you may say um, <laughs> to this answer in, in regards to one or two people, but in regards to your biggest influences on you both now professionally and then also personally, who would you say have been your biggest influences on you both personally or professionally and personally? Yeah, for, for me, of course, you, you know what I'm going to say here. And, and uh, of course, none of this for the listening audience is actually scripted. I think Robbie just has followed enough of my tweets to know where my answer is going to go. And uh, professionally, it's without a doubt, Nikolai Bernstein. Um, you know, when, when I first started, What's that? I was at uh, Bernie, and I was like, not Bernie Sanders. <laughs> yeah, it's Stu, uh, you know, a mutual friend of ours, Stu McMillan. He always uh, hashtags Bernie whenever he, whenever he uh, tweets me something, and, <laughs> and we have conversations about good old Bernie. Uh, but, again, it's, it's Nikolai Bernstein on our end, uh, simply because he, was, he, he truly uh, changed the course of my career, and literally, Robbie, the course of – dozens upon dozens of NFL players' careers as well. Uh, their movement skill wouldn't be what it was or what it is and what it becomes each and every day through the work that we do and the, the way that we approach our craft if it wasn't for Nikolai Bernstein. And, and I say this because he um, really just revolutionized the way that I think about things. Uh, the very first time that I read 
repetition without repetition and that excerpt from it. Uh, it literally changed me. And every single time, and I know this sounds really dramatic and, and sort of out there, but it, every time I, re I read it right now, it's still, um, I feel like I know it and, and breathe it and feel it a little bit deeper too, to where it changes me and keeps me honest towards what we're doing and how we're doing it, at least with my players and, and how I think about uh, motor behavior, both in regards to motor control as well as motor learning to this day. So uh, my answer there, Nikolai Bernstein, sort of fits within both of those two uh, questions that you had, both professionally as well as personally and the reason why it has changed me so personally is because it has actually changed uh sort of my staying power if you will uh with my nfl players you know it is not that i need to be relevant per se but because of that which what i do and believe that my purpose is uh in this whole world is to change the way that we view sport movement skill and if it weren't for Nikolai Bernstein, I actually wouldn't be able to fulfill that end of that purpose that I hopefully uh, ultimately later on down the road will be able to get to. So I, I would say that same answer sort of applies for both questions that you had there. Sweet, sweet. So you're not taking as long with these answers as I thought. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if Stu's listening, uh, he's going to laugh at that because he's probably thinking to himself, you know, the, the best is yet to come there and you're not going to get this dude to shut up. Well, it's funny because I'm the same. Uh, I had a recent podcast with Mike Tashir, my own podcast, and like Stu's like, I'm 45 minutes in and Robbie hasn't shut up yet. So he's... <laughs> <laughs> we might surprise people just yet, my friend. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> oh, I think of Stu's like, oh, Robbie and Sean on the podcast, that must have went on for four days. <laughs> but, uh, just before we hop into everything and anything to do with skill acquisition and like literally like, it was funny just for the viewers and the listeners we were meant to do this last week with sean what was busy and in a way i was kind of like oh i'm actually kind of happy because it gave me an extra week to kind of formulate how i wanted to ask the questions and gave me more time to watch your presentations and also 360 which by the way are phenomenal um so anyone who's on also 360 like i've, I've literally been watching your repetition rep, repetition repetition from last november i've watched it about six seven times like even when i'm cooking my dinner i have the laptop like turned and i'm there like and all i can hear is just you know, you talking about all the, all the, you know, movement solutions. And like, it's funny because you're talking to a, a, a classroom of like just strength and conditioning coaches and you're, you're like, mm -hmm. I, I know some of these words like attunement and affordance. You might be too familiar with them. And like, you can just see like, you're talking about Bernstein and uh, Carl Noel and everyone's just like, <laughs> you know, and that's a, that's a natural response that I typically get. You know, I, I presented at a strength and conditioning conference um, a number of years back, and it was the very first time that I had talked about the constraints-led approach. Uh, you know, we're probably talking five-ish years ago. The first time that I talked uh, uh, in front of a room of strength and conditioning coaches about this topic, and there were probably, uh, I'm not a good estimate here, but probably four to 500 coaches in the room. And I asked who had heard about any of these respective topics. And I, and I talked about pretty much everything underneath this ecological dynamics umbrella, everything from constraints of approach to ecological psychology, attunement, affordances, all of these ideas. And I literally had three freaking people raise their hand. And it was all three people that I had spoken with the night before. So uh, th that's, you know, this sort of resistance that we get simply because of the unfamiliarity of some of these ideas. You know, my, my good friend Rob Gray and I often talk about 
five or six years ago, people weren't talking about these or discussing these ideas much at all. And now, of course, I'm very pleased um, and grateful for the way that the profession is afford, sort of taken hold here a bit and, and tried to at least understand them, uncover them, unlayer them for what it means for them in their own practices and what they're doing and how they're doing it. Because, you know, I, I wouldn't have been able to have a, an entire conference, an entire weekend centered around these ideas of using ecological dynamics as this lens to, to both understand movement skill, but also try to guide and facilitate that movement skill acquisition. If it weren't for the, the people out there being willing to adopt the ideas. And, and that's the cool thing for me because I've been able to see some of that evolution. And I hope it's only the tip of the iceberg because I know we got a lot further to be able to go. We all do. Um, you know, everyone from myself to the people who are out there researching it to the obviously the people who are more in the coal phase who are are implementing these ideas across the timescales of uh, the athletes that they work with. Yeah, it's funny. I'm just I'm just pulling up this book, Developing Sport Next Piece. And the, the, reason why <laughs> pull, the reason I pulled that up is just on your last point there, but we've a long way to go. Bruce Abernathy uh, wrote, um, he wrote in the last section of the book, section five and second last chapter about like some of the, some of the areas that we still have a long way to go. And, you know, like for instance, one thing he was like the comparison between the evidence available to practitioners in the health field and biomedical research and clinical trials. Like he was just basically saying like, the difference in the standard of their research protocols in comparison to what we can do in skill acquisition. But it's also the same when it comes to strength and condition. Like it's anyone who's done like any sort of sports science degree or, or master's strength and condition. It's like, it's like, what's usually like the one big problem with strength and condition research that the, the studies are too short and the mm-hmm. participation numbers are eight, but then like you got to be realistic and say, if they're going to fund, a vertical jump study or a study on skill acquisition or something like nonlinear pedagogy versus cancer. It's like, they're going to, yeah. they're going to, so that's, that, that's, that's one sort of constraint we've come over on that. But you just remind me of Bruce Abinadi saying that, but before we jump into the tons of topics I want to get into, so like your Robert Frost moment, we'll get into that in just a second. I love that. And I have my Robert Frost moment, but there's two days. <laughs> but, uh, I also loved your joke too in, in that presentation. And, and you were like, now for the next four hours of this presentation, then you pause to see if anyone would laugh. And you were just like, okay. People- <laughs> the, the only person shaking their head in the whole room that knew that I was maybe sort of joking but yet somewhat serious would have been Stu probably as well <laughs> so Sean before we hop into the main topic around this this whole episode which will be scale acquisition and everything I to do with it just before I get into that one question I want your professional and personal opinion on and something I ask all my guests in your opinion what what are the good and the not so good things that you currently see within the whole uh, sports preparation profession and with the not so good things you see what sort of mm-hmm would you offer up? Yeah, I mean, I think my answer probably will take, much like any of my answers throughout the course of the day, will center around this whole idea of movement and movement skill. Because uh, when it's all said and done, I believe when we uncover and unlayer it all, whether it's everything from from these physical qualities and characteristics to our psychological qualities and characteristics to the athlete performing uh, on their sports or, or in their sports arena and their competitive arena, I believe that movements, of course, are at the foundation of that all. 
Um, that's what underpins that movement skill is really what underpins it all. So for me, my, my answer is sort of give the caveat here to all listeners out there. Uh, you're probably going to hear some common themes from me in that I always come back to the movement. And, and Robbie, you probably know this. In fact, to the listeners out there, we were talking off air when we were chatting before we got on uh, about the ideas uh, portrayed in Super Training by Dr. Mel Siff and Dr. Yuri Verkoshansky. And again, I live and breathe by a quote. And I know that people who've heard me talk before about this, yes, I love it. And I got my copy right behind me as well. Um, you know, people have heard me say this before, but I really do breathe it. <laughs> I love it. Sport is, sport is nothing but a problem-solving activity where movements are used to produce a necessary solution. And uh, to me, when we really look at that, Robbie, that forms my answer to a certain degree because I view everything as a problem and solution connection. Mm -hmm. It's a ever-going, ongoing constant circular causality type of relationship between the problems and the solutions. So between the environment and the performer. And for me, you know, again, I will throw out another quote here. And I'm only using quotes that, that people much, much smarter than me that have used to open up my eyes a lot. And Nikolai Bernstein said, no natural phenomenon can be understood without carefully considering how it emerged. So again, when I think about what we're doing right and wrong as a profession, as an entire sport performance community, I think it centers around these ideas. Oftentimes within our profession, we love uh, sexy, uh, efficient, uh, crisp, clean movement yeah. so much that we direct our efforts down this technical execution model inside. But on the same token, we forget about what the problem is offering us and how the problem may change in this ever dynamic, ever changing fashion. And when we throw things like pressure and anxiety and fatigue into the mix, how that may change the problem that that athlete faces in this perceptual motor workspace, this space that exists between this problem and solution relationship, and what that may do to the solutions that the athlete has to offer in response to that problem. And so for me, Robbie, I think this sort of creates this paradigm where we do a fantastic job in sports performance in directing our efforts towards anything that we possibly can from a physical preparatory standpoint, but we're not actually investigating it where the skill exists and where the skill lies. And what I mean by that is, is we do a great job, again, with technical execution, biomechanics, and we're sort of uh, asymmetrical with our focus there. Yeah. We do a wonderful job. So in practice, our athletes look, look crisp and clean and sexy, and it's nice and neat. But then when they go out onto the, to the competitive arena or into the competitive arena, and again, pressure and fatigue and, and chaos and complexity enters the mix, you know, it becomes a gong show then. And, and then in that regard, like, I think we're missing that boat and we have to do a better job really truly uncovering the layers of the problem and solution connection to understand how sport movement behavior really emerges. And it emerges in response to what the problem is offering us. And, and of course, I'm sure we'll get into this later a little bit, but that's what ecological dynamics has really done for me. And it has allowed me to sort of shift my lens 
to find more truth as it exists in this problem and solution connection. This perceptual motor workspace, if you will, you know, what types of relationship or how that human movement system has a relationship with the environment and the task. And again, if we go back to Nikolai Bernstein's quote that no natural phenomenon can be understood without carefully considering how it emerged, I believe that emergence and that understanding has to stem from this collision uh, or, or cohesion, if you will, between uh, environment, task, and organism. So instead of taking this organismic asymmetry we have to have a more holistic view there of everything that, uh, uh, it, you know, obviously requiring uh, of the respective sport. So a few things on that from my perspective is um, something that I really meditated hard on at the end of 2016, start of 2017. I'm, like people who've heard me speak, when I say meditate, it usually means I think and how I think. Yeah go for walks and i think mm-hmm. but uh that's my form of meditation if you like was this concept of certainty in in your life in every aspect so because the biggest question every single human has whether they consciously meditate on this or think about it a lot or it's just subconsciously in the back of your mind and it's in the back of mm-hmm. your mind it's like what happens when I die? Like what's next? And the, and the answer is we don't know. So it's this massive cloud of uncertainty. So at a subconscious level, what we do is we try and add certainty in every aspect of our life to gain back a sense of control. So whether that's to some sort of habit, whether it's exercise or drugs or drink or, you know, like everything is just really a habit. Um, and then like, or it could be like some sort of belief system, but I see that too then in training. So it's like, you know, sexy, right angles, perfect mechanical models, uh, physical development in the weight room because it's easy, it's controllable, it's consistent, mm-hmm. it's certain. I know that if you do that, you're more than likely 99.9% of the time are going to get this result. Whereas when we go out and like, we're like, yeah, but does it transfer to like really dynamic, chaotic movement? And we're like, uh, yeah. I, I don't do that. I'm the strength coach. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we, it's funny because Tony Robbins in his, in his book, Awaken the Giant Within, he has there's a part in the book where he goes, the two biggest stresses to human beings are one, certainty. And he goes, and then two, too much certainty. Mm-hmm. So it's, like, it's like the paradox of specificity and overload and training, you know what I mean? Or variation of specificity and training. It's like if you go too, too extreme either one end, you're not going to get an optimal result. So it's the same with this idea of certainty and then uncertainty. And, and really if you look at this from more of a philosophical life standpoint, like with Buddhism, their whole thing is like, you just need to come to acceptance of uncertainty. And like, mm-hmm. that's one of their main tenets. It's the same then too with a coach and that, you know, you often relate this matches of you, the coach need to realize that you are a facilitator. Yeah. Cause it's just, it's, it's dynamic when something's dynamic and nonlinear, nonlinear is something I really learned from Keith Davis. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so nonlinear for the viewers and the listeners means that, a small input can have a massive output or vice versa. A massive input can have a small output, not like a linear system where small in means small out and big in means big out. So that was one thing was this, this concept of having to have certainty in our lives to overcome this fear of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And we need to go into uncertain situations. That's how we do grow as human beings. It's part of the, 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 the journey that is life. It's part of transcendence of being a human. Now, this is more just my opinion, just in case people are wondering. <laughs> well, I mean, the second thing, and then I'll, well, I'll, hand, I'll hand back the four-hour conversation to you, uh, <laughs> is 
I was lucky early in my life to be exposed. And if I can actually get the book, I might be able to reach it. Uh, yeah. I, I realized I went away from the mic there. My, my, uh, my podcast uh, production team will be angry. So when I, was, <laughs> when I was younger, I was very lucky to be exposed to this book. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. biology belief by bruce lipton who's a phd in cell biology and what he made me realize or made me really appreciate was epigenetics so at a young age i had a big appreciation for how the environment shapes an organism mm-hmm. then when you read more into sort of human development behavior you realize okay while well, the envir- environment shapes an organism what really separates humans from other organisms is that we can perceive our environment and then like when i because I, I remember i had previously read davis burton and bennett's book i have it up there on my bookshelf I tried mm-hmm. to read that back in like 2008, nine. I was like, what's going on here? Yeah. Then I got introduced to epigenetics about 2010, 11. And when I went back then to the dynamics of skill acquisition book by Bennett Burton and Davis, I was like, this makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. Of course you have to consider the environment and the task with the organism. I mean, how can you not consider the environment? I'm like, cause the epigenetics has kind of shaped my whole uh, process of how I see and perceive reality. So, those two big things for me. So epigenetics and then this concept of uncertainty kind of gave me a reference frame of how I'm currently seeing this whole skill acquisition um, field, if you like. And so, Sean, next thing I want to dive into here is um, your Robert Frost moment. So tell us about mm-hmm. that. So you had an NFL player. You, you, from a physical standpoint, it was unreal, hitting all like these great scores. You were like, can't wait till he gets back to the NFL. He's going to be unreal. I'm going to look great. And then... Mm-hmm. He was just kind of like, meh, and you were kind of like, <laughs> something's right here. So tell us about Robert Frost moment. Take it away. Yeah, there, there's actually two Robert Frost moments that I'll bring up because it sort of speaks to the points that you were just making, Robbie, as well. Uh, the, the first Robert Frost moment was with my very first NFL player. Mm-hmm. Uh, he came to me and like what, what you were talking about there. We, we made these huge changes in physical preparation, and I sort of had that attitude that you mentioned earlier, like, well, I'm the strength and conditioning coach. Here's what I have to do in order to get his physical preparatory uh, ability back where it needs to be when he entered the league. And he had just been in the league for three or four years at that point, and he was already a starter in the league. So uh, as most people who've worked with NFL players in the past will know, that once they stop training for the stupid thing called the combine, those respective physical qualities in those combine tasks and activities drop down drastically quickly thereafter because obviously they're not necessarily overly indicative of that which what happens on a football field on an NFL Sunday but that being said that's a bigger problem in and of itself but that's just sort of our necessary um, or evil necessity that we deal with here in the National Football League well uh, as a young strength and conditioning professional not yet seeing the light not yet having my Robert Frost moment I did what every strength and conditioning professional typically would do, and we directed our efforts towards re-increasing those respective physical qualities. And we not only got him back to where he was just those three or four years prior to that point when he tested at Indianapolis at the NFL Combine, but we well exceeded them, much of like what you talked about. So I was just patting myself on the back, like, here, I finally got my first NFL player. I'm going to send him back to the NFL, and he's going to freaking take over the league. Well, like you said, once he got there, it was kind of like, uh, there was nothing there. And I was like confused, scratching my head, pulling out more hair that I didn't really have to lose to begin with. So when he got there and I was watching him, I'm like, 
Sean, there's got to be something more to it here. We increased all of these physical qualities and characteristics. Why aren't they showing up on the actual playing field? And, and as this season went on, I continued to investigate this deeper and deeper and deeper. And I'm like, wait a minute. We didn't actually prepare the way that he plays out on a field on Sunday. Any of our movement activities that we perform were all done at that point in a really closed fashion. And I said, like many strength and conditioning professionals do, I said, well, I'll leave it to the sport coach to go teach him those technical, um, those technical models, if you will. At least that's what I believed at that point. I'll let that be up to them. And what, lo and behold, I figured out is no one was actually just uh, – sort of facilitating that skill so none of those respective qualities actually emerged on an NFL Sunday. And so I had, Robbie, as you had already brought the mention to, what I refer to as my Robert Frost moment, where I could keep going down that trail. Because technically, I did what I was employed to do, right? I was employed to be this guy's strength and conditioning coach or personal trainer or however it is, you know, athletic performance enhancement coach, whatever title you want to use there. I achieved that respective goal, but he didn't actually see that transference or that correspondence and that actualization out on a field. So I knew first and foremost, I needed to change something because that's what I was being hired to do. This guy don't care if he jumps higher. He honestly doesn't even care if he runs faster when it's just him and I out in a practice setting, right? He doesn't care about any of those things. All he cares about is one thing and one thing only. For that three and a half hour period of time on a Sunday afternoon, am I better than I was last year? Am I better than I was last week? And am I getting closer and closer and closer to my realized potential, that which what I have, to stay at this level and keep getting paid? Yeah. And so my Robert Frost moment quickly diverted me down a different trail, which was a trail that was much less traveled. Of course, and, and of course, I started to really adopt and connect to many of the ideas that exist in movement skill acquisition then at that time. I, I realized I started to have to understand those problems within sport a lot more intimately. And once I started to really respect the problems within the environment, much of like what you said in your previous point about understanding the role of the environment there, I started to view myself as not this big teacher, this coach, if you will, but instead that facilitator where I was attempting to set up an environment and tasks within that environment to look, act, feel, and behave like that, which what they did in sport. And once I did that, I was able to sort of facilitate this movement at a much higher level. Ironically enough, I say that, Robbie, but my second Robert Frost moment came along those same lines, like a number of years after that. So in, this was in 2008 when I got that first NFL player. So for the next four years, I went down this movement route and I was really asymmetrical with the organism. Like I'm like, okay, if, I'm, if it's not about physical qualities and characteristics, I have to help teach or instruct or coach this guy on how to move more efficaciously. Yeah. And I did it without the environment at first. I was really focusing on the organism and the task. And I often did that because I thought, okay, well, I can't really represent that which what happens on an NFL Sunday in front of 70,000 people. So I'm just going to perfect his movement and his movement patterns. 
and I did this with a good amount of players. And, of course, they got a little better because they got more efficient, so they had less injury, of course. But yet something was still missing. And it wasn't until 2012. And now 2012, for the listeners out there, was probably when you look at the guys that I worked with, our most successful, when I say our, I mean mine with them, their most successful uh, NFL season. Uh, I had a handful of players that went to the Pro Bowl. I had a number of players that won postseason accolades. And I'm like, Sean, there's still something missing here. Like, I, I almost just felt like they were still compensating so much when they got in the environment, the representative environment, the organic environment, that I wasn't doing the service and justice the way I need to. So that's when I finally had my second Robert Frost moment and the world opened up and I started to respect the environment and the task and the, the organism as this three-headed monster. And what lives there is the information that exists when they all combine, when they all integrate, when each of these component parts interact with each other, what will emerge from it? And then, of course, that's when I really started to uh, dive uh, full-fledged, uh, head-first into much of Carl Newell's work. Obviously, I really started to, to understand Nikolai Bernstein's work a lot more deeply, even though I had read it a number of times prior to that point. Uh, Keith Davids, who you mentioned up to this point, Duarte Ruggio, these individuals started to open up uh, Pandora's box for me considerably more. And, and then once I did that, I've been able to now view myself and respect myself and my role as the facilitator. And so I try to give the keys of the car to the athlete so they have ownership when and where it counts, which is in an NFL Sunday. So oftentimes they know what they perceive what they intend, and how they act, as opposed to me looking from the outside in saying, I think you should have acted this way without fully respecting what they perceived and what they intended to do without just viewing that little action, that little biomechanical side over on the end. That's brilliant. And, and there's, there's a point that I want to get into uh, just off what you said there in terms of, you know, you just said you give the car keys to the because in your talk at Altus in November, Mm-hmm. And again, just because, as I was saying to you offline, I'm, as we say in Ireland, I'm balls deep <laughs> <laughs> in, my, in my skill acquisition research. Because currently in my master's now, um, one of the modules is biomechanics and skill acquisition, and we're into the skill acquisition part. So I'm just reading everything on skill act. So I'll show you the books there that I have. But uh, one of the concepts that comes up into the book, you know, in the discussion with feedback and augmented feedback, was you don't want to make the athlete overly dependent on the feedback and then obviously we'll get into the concepts of implicit versus explicit learning mm-hmm. and then you spoke about one of the five key trends so in the five key trends you saw across all masters uh in within sport movements the first one was ownership mm-hmm. and you spoke about the pole vaulter from great britain and she was like, you know, looking up to the stand and the coach telling her what to do. And you were like, that's not ownership. And it affected her performance. So, like, maybe could you touch into that, like, too much dependency? Um, so, really get into dependency, augmented feedback, explicit versus implicit learning, if you want to take it away from there. Yeah, you know, for me, I was guilty, very guilty, of trying to drive the car and have the athlete not only in the passenger seat, but probably in the back seat, maybe in the damn trunk, for all I care. Uh, early in my career, when I had that first Robert Frost moment, and I'm like, 
okay, we got to drive ourselves towards these perfect technical models. And because movement, I believe, held the keys, truly held the keys to the car or represented the car that we needed to drive down the road. And instead, I overly communicated explicitly certain ideas, both in instruction as well as in feedback, even in observation. I would have players watch, maybe I had a wide receiver, and I would have that player watch Jerry Rice move. And I'd be like, today we're going to try to replicate these aspects of the technical model. It was more of a deliberate practice model, if you will, in that way, Hmm. to where we found some expert, this putative, idealistic uh, movement pattern, thinking that that was truly the solution. So then we would go about um, executing or repeating the means of that solution without respect to the problem over and over and over again. And maybe what Nikolai would say uh, is that rote repetition model. And when that happened, I would, you know, that sort of this um, implication that we have for many of our traditional ideas in skill acquisition, mostly oriented around generalized motor program or schema theories, which says, okay, we're going to repeat this, and then it's just going to be a program that can run automatically, ultimately. So I figured if I uh, gave them um, what they had to do, maybe through observation, I gave them declarative knowledge or explicit knowledge that hopefully would lead to expert declarative knowledge, and then overrode them with feedback, that eventually all they would do is hear my voice in their head, and they would be able to run automatically and be able to detect and correct errors and have this sort of feedback and feed forward system that was uh, really clean and crisply running. And lo and behold, uh, what I found was players who performed wonderfully in practice or in the training setting. So from 2008 to 2012, my guys looked almost perfect in practice because that's how they practiced. They practiced in a rote repetition, perfect practice model. And then they'd get out into the, to the game on Sunday, and some of that would emerge, mostly in regards to their initial conditions when there's a whole lot less chaos ensuing. But when chaos entered the mix more, the problems got more diverse and more complex, they didn't have the solutions or the adaptability to solve those respective problems. And then it was almost like they were looking around and now I'd be in the stands, but they can't communicate with me much like what we talked about with that pole vaulter. You know, they're like looking around like, what in the hell do I do? I've not been trained for this. And it's like, you have been trained for this, haven't you? And I started again, that's when I really started to lose my hair, Robbie, because, you know, I'm like, man, I thought I was onto something here. You know, I've been preaching about this movement, Miyagi BS for this long a period of time. But yet, what type of teacher really was I? I was this over-controlling, hyper-controlling teacher. And it wasn't until I said, okay, maybe there will be times that I have to just have guided discovery with the individuals. Maybe there's times that I have to take a step back. And much like you, Robbie, and and Stu's going to laugh at this one as well, there's some times that I have to go without talking. And uh, in fact... I have to go without talking a lot in our sessions because the individual is already trying to understand and educate their attention, their intention, and then try to calibrate along with that. So this perception, intention, and action cycle Mm. in this coupling can be theirs. 
meaning their movement solutions can be formulated or formed based on how they're understanding their own attunement and affordances for action. And, and once I did that, things changed considerably. So, you know, that being said for the listeners out there, even though I'm now much, very much in, the, in this um, nonlinear pedagogy type of idea of ecological dynamics where it's more about self-organization of the human movement system and the guiding and facilitating of that self-organizing system through constraints-led approach or the manipulation of the constraints, there still are times and places, of course, to interject and give them explicit information. If you can help them connect to the information within that environment and task, much more specifically, say maybe it's a running back and I need him to uh, fixate or focus in on a linebacker or defensive back's hips as opposed to their shoulders or their eyes or vice versa in this relationship, maybe I can explicitly tell them, hey, um, you know, I, I'm wearing a different colored belt. I want you to look at the belt. You know, something simple like that. That's an explicit way to guide their or educate their attention so then they can attach their intention and their action differently to it. But I was to the point where I'm like, your hips have to move this way. Your feet have to go here. Um, then I want you at this projection angle out of that break or change of direction. And that just got to be too much. And when it got to be too much for them, they were no longer holding the keys to the car or driving the car, but instead they were almost uh, having this paralysis by analysis after each and every time that they executed any quote-unquote movement solution because it technically wasn't a movement solution. And, and that's where when I said earlier how Nikolai Bernstein's words around repetition without repetition sort of shook me to my core. It sort of reached out and shook me because he said it's not in the process of repeating the means of the solution, but it's in the process of solving the actual problem. So it became more about the problem that they were being faced with. And I still realized there was great responsibility for me now as this movement skill acquisition facilitator to come in and shape the problem and the task. But maybe it wasn't in my communication per se as it had been in the past. So I think we get, we, we kind of find ourselves in that implicit versus explicit argument where we're in this athlete-centered versus coach-centered approach, right? You talked about my Altus presentation there with, where I just started to try to, to uh, suggest certain ideas that they may be able to take in a track and field, an elite track and field setting in regards to how repetition without repetition has shaped uh, or formed my craft. And a lot of it does come down to this sort of art within coaching, right? When to be coach-centered and when to be athlete-centered and how to kind of exist along those. And, and I think we see things such as observational learning and demonstration in there. We see things uh, such as uh, our instruction. We see things such as our feedback. We see things such as our practice organization. And, and when all is said and done, we should – a look towards if we're really going to be nonlinear pedagogists or if we're going to be skill acquisition uh, facilitators, the more athlete centered that we can be at the times that we need to be, which is difficult for all of us, myself included, as everyone can tell already, that I don't mind hearing myself talk at times, but to be athlete centered, there's times that you've got to take a step back 
and allow the practice task that the athlete is experiencing in that time. It has to be a search process. Yeah. And when we view practice as a search process, they get a chance to explore. And that's where, as a facilitator, then I can manipulate and make it the problem repetition without repetition. And I can start to have problem and solution fidelity. And that's really, to me, what correspondence and transference is about because now we find that the athlete gets to become attuned to their affordances for action. They get to perceive to act and they get to act to perceive. Authenticity emerges from that. And we see abundant movement solutions. We see adaptability and ultimately, hopefully we see dexterity. So then I've realized, Robbie, the last thought that I'll kind of leave the listeners with there in that mouthful is that learning then in this type of environment becomes much more individualistic than idealistic and that was my second Robert Frost moment when it hit me as I read and dived into more and more Bernstein's ideas and then J.J. Gibson with ecological psychology, Carl Newell with a constraints-led approach, Keith Davids with ecological dynamics and the marrying of those. That's really what it came down to, being athlete-centered and being individualistic as opposed to idealistic. So a few thoughts on that. In, in the book, uh, Developing Sport and Expertise, Rich Martins has a great chapter on implicit learning. And mm-hmm. really, what's beautiful about that book is they give like a coach's corner at the end of each chapter and how like they, they took what was theoretically explained in the chapter and showed how it can be used practically. And in his chapter, they spoke about a, a, a snowboarder trying to, you know, pull off, I think it was like a 380, like I know the snowboard, but he kept focusing his vision like I think on a, on a like not in the ideal area, and it, he just couldn't make the full somersault. Mm-hmm. And the coach was like telling him explicitly, and then Rich said to the coach, "Go over, stand there, and hold out your hand, and just ask the athlete to tell you how many fingers you're holding out." So the first time the athlete didn't see the hand, second time athlete didn't see the hand, third time athlete saw he was holding out whatever two, three, four fingers, and made the mm-hmm. somersault, but he didn't land it. And then the fourth time, or whatever, he got it. And it was just a great example of implicit learning. You know, so he talks about like the secondary tasks, get people to do secondary tasks while they're doing the primary tasks. So it's phenomenal information. That And just a thought that completely came into my head there, just again going with explicit versus implicit. And this is how my brain would think. You probably, and this probably be no surprise to you because being friends with Stu, like, or Dan Faf and yourself, we're kind of outside the box thinkers anyway. Mm-hmm. Have you ever looked into then, like, animal training? Because obviously, animals have it has to be all implicit, like, like you can't verbalize to the oh, extend your leg, or whatever. So, like, you know, with dogs or even like horses, like, surely then all their training is a constraint spread led approach to some degree, is it not? Yeah, I love that point because uh, about half a year ago, an individual who uh, sometimes people will see me retweet uh, as I think her uh, her name is Kathy, but her um, Twitter name is Intrinzen. I believe it's I N T R I Z N or something of that nature. Sometimes people will see me retweet that, and she trains horses, and she's trained horses for for years and years, and and this is what her craft is. And she uh, had reached out to me, which I was so, so excited to see, because she said she heard Rob Gray and myself uh, often chatting about some of these constraints-led approaches and, and the ideas of, of connecting and integrating perception, intention, and action in this coupling or constant secular causality type of fashion. And, and she reached out to me and she said, 
you know, once you started talking about these ideas and repetition without repetition, um, all of a sudden it dawned on me that we were trying to control our animals too much and, and uh, they weren't able to rehabilitate them. Uh, she was taking a lot of horses that maybe sometimes people would deem as like these worst case scenarios, right? And uh, she started using more of a constraints-led approach with them. And all of a sudden, her craft and her practice took off. So hopefully, she doesn't mind me mentioning that because she has some wonderful ideas in these regards uh, for those of you who will find her on Twitter. Uh, so I just love talking to people like that. I, I did go out and talk to uh, some dog trainers, too, and, and just asked to just sit and watch how they manipulate the environment and test because right. they can't explicitly communicate in the same ways that we can when we have this language yeah. that, that there isn't this barrier with. I mean, sometimes there is, as, as we all both know, and that's the reason why maybe sometimes it has to be more implicit than explicit, right? Because we're all coming into it with our own context, our own understanding of what this language may mean. But when you have to communicate with an animal that isn't going to communicate back besides in body language or in the movement behavior that emerges, it forces you to become really attuned as a facilitator, right? Because if you don't, um, then you're probably not going to manipulate the task in the environment very well to get the right movement behavior to emerge more efficaciously or the right learning to occur. So that became really fascinating to me. The other thing that um, the, after the very first time that I was at Altus, and I believe this was in either 2014 or 2015, it was still called World Athletic Center at that point, and I still wear my World Athletic Center shirts around, uh, but uh, just to represent, in fact, I wore it last time at Altus, and then, it, you know, they, they made me change up, but uh, uh, that being said, the very first time I was there, I watched uh, Coach Path just communicate with his athletes, and, and it wasn't um, all implicit by any means. It wasn't all explicit by any means. But instead, what he does better than I think anyone else I've ever seen is sort of tailor and individualize the communication, whether it's instruction or whether it's in regards to feedback or whether it's in an analogy. He uses what he needs to to get the key to the lock, so to say. Mm -hmm. So that athlete's lock that they possess and their own intrinsic dynamics, meaning what movement solutions they have available to them based on past experiences or past practices or, or where their structure of movement stands at that moment in time, yeah. where their toolbox is and how we can tap into it to guide it not at that moment for performance necessarily, but for that moment for learning so you can get performance later on. And, and Coach Pap does that better than any individual I've ever seen. And, and Robbie, where I'm going with that is, I, you know, I sat there and watched and I was fascinated by what Dan did so much so that I'm like, okay, I, I kind of trace back Dan's steps. And of course, he was a teacher back in the day. So I ended up reaching out to a bunch of different teachers in a lot of different disciplines and domains. Um, I went and watched kindergarten teachers, and I found that, you know, hopefully none of my NFL players are listening to this, but I found that those kindergartners were pretty similar to my dang NFL players in the way that they communicate, you know? And, and so I realized, like, maybe we got to learn more from these different disciplines and pedagogy to really try to figure out how our best communication our, or our most effective communication for whatever our goal was at that moment. Because all movement 
is goal-directed, right? That's our intention. What problem is there to solve? And, and then when I started to really look at this, you start to think about many of the ideas that Bernstein has shared throughout the years, you know, in dexterity when he talks about having a movement solution under any condition, under any situation, being able to come up with a movement solution that is correct but resourceful, and it's at the right time and in the right place. So when you talk about uh, masters discussing this sort of uh, education of attention with the snowboarder or skateboarder or one of those types of athletes, it's really no different than what I'm trying to do. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to educate the attention so they're looking at the right thing at the right time and, the, and this information means the right thing for them. There's certain variability that goes along with perception as well. So being able to connect with the information in the right ways will determine, when I say right ways, it's right for the individual, okay? So there isn't a right and a wrong way to, to take or attune the information. It's variable, just like it's individualistic with the movement pattern. It's individualistic for the perception. It's individual for the in, intention. So when I have a running back there facing, man, I may have two running backs, they're in the same environment. And I say same because no two problems are ever truly the same, right? that an NFL running back will face, but I may have them face a similarly behaving problem, and they have much different solutions to finding that. They have degeneracy in their movement solutions, right? And they're coming up with their own dexterous movement solution at who they are at that moment in time based on where their movement solutions are and how adaptable their movement solutions can be. They must become attuned to that. So I know that I'm sort of rambling here, but this is why I get so pumped up and psyched up about, you know, this whole idea of affordances for action that you and I, Robbie and Sean are going to face the same movement problem and, and I'm going to solve it much, much differently than you are. Mm -hmm. and, and I should and you versus me as well. You know, I mean, we must look to, this is this lock and key situation for all of us when we face movement problems in sport. We have to different, you know, the same situation. When I say same, again, for the listeners out there, I mean similarly behaving and acting problems and situations will selectively like afford and invite different strategies from you and I. And when it, and it, when it invites and affords different strategies from you and I, it could also be different from time to time that I face it. And that's really degeneracy, right? We're trying to find the movement being correct when it perfectly fits the motor problem at that time for who we are. And that, to me, is why skill acquisition is more about, as Keith Davids and, and Duarte Ruggio would say, is more about attunement and adaptation than it is about acquiring something. Yes. Because technique will waver. You know, Stephen Verkoshansky talked about technique not being constant long, long ago. And that, to me, skill is not constant either. That's nonlinear pedagogy. So you can start to see where some of these concepts and principles and ideas, I know I, I don't even remember what our original question was, and I probably took us down some rabbit holes there, but um, obviously I got pretty psyched up there for a moment. Oh, it's perfect because just the, even like the words you're saying are so, like I just made notes of these like one, two words and like things I want to touch on. So degeneracy was something – because I actually had not heard of the term degeneracy until I read through these books. Mm -hmm. And then when I went back, and again, it's like anything. I, I've seen this process in my life over and over in that like, 
I read something and I just wasn't ready to absorb it. Mm-hmm. You know, so like, let's say I watched one of your presentations last year and I was like, I kind of get some of this. And then when I read these books, it was like, and then I'm rewatching it. I was like, this all makes perfect sense. So <laughs> that, 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 that picture of Bernstein always showed the guy hammering the nail in. I was like, that's degeneracy right there. So You got it. People who don't know what degeneracy is, the, one of the basic concepts is that you can be presented with a similar environmental situation and you can produce a similar outcome, but how you produce that outcome had massive variability in it. Even though it could look similar, there were still massive variability. So like, even things like a squat, no two squats are the same. There's some yeah. element of degeneracy in that. Um, an area that I am fascinated in, in skill acquisition, and I must give a thank you to John Goodwin, who's one of our head um, lecturers um, in St. Mary's University, Twickenham, where I'm doing my master's. And I think he's just phenomenal when it comes to biomechanics, he's a smart dude. Uh, biomechanics and skill acquisition. I, I truly enjoy it. Like, all the lectures. It's a great course just for anyone. Anyone, anyone who goes, like, well, how are you getting on your master's? I'm like, honestly, I'm loving it. It's a phenomenal course. But John really made me realize um, or made me appreciate like how dynamic and how changeable um, from a moment-to-moment basis the, the motor perceptual landscape is. And he mm-hmm. really appreciated affordances. And you, you just, something I was really shaking my head to there in a yes sort of manner was when you said how that organism is in that very moment. Because there's so many, and this isn't even just physically, this is emotionally, mentally, cognitively. You got it. Like, like mm-hmm. us humans are such dynamic organisms. We are so variable. Like we, we're, we're mm-hmm. so different moment to moment. Like a question I have here for you is transient factors. I mean, like your blood sugar could be changing your movement as well as obviously your psychology, how you slept the night before, who did you interact with just before you went to that training session? They're all going to change your affordances in that moment. What you were, you able, to do, what you were able to do on Tuesday night We'll do that set that same, and just for the listeners or uh, viewers, I'm doing this with quotations, the same drill on Thursday night. Mm-hmm. And you can't execute it the same way because you are not the same organism you were Tuesday. Maybe because you had a stressful day at work, again, you didn't sleep well. Maybe you picked up a twinge in your ankle the day before and you just don't have the afford. So, John made me, one of friends said, John Gooden made me appreciate the idea of affordances. And I'm, I'm really um, fascinated by recalibration, so fascinated mm-hmm. by it because. Again, I was seeing this, Sean, when I didn't understand it. So, again, I'm a physical preparation coach, training condition, performance enhancement. That always makes me think about some sort of sex. Uh, <laughs> the person goes through, like, sex counseling. I'm a performance enhancement. <laughs> as a, a strength conditioning coach or a physical preparation coach, I was seeing this with my athletes. They'd come mm-hmm. to me in the off-season, get them bigger, faster, stronger. But what I didn't realize at the time was I'm changing their – their uh, perceptual motor landscape because mm-hmm. they're going and see so what happened is they come to me for an off season we, we do our strength conditioning work they go back then to their sport in the preseason and coordination ways to be all over the place because mm-hmm. they acquired their skills when their body was in a different morphological and functional state from, from a physical uh, aspect in terms of their biomotor abilities, even bioenergetics, and then obviously emotions and, and cognitive abilities as well. So they're going back 
and they're basically having to relearn these skills with a brand new system and organism like they have a bit more muscle mass on they might be a bit more stronger or powerful and uh, you see this discoordination and everyone say ah it's just the rust that comes off obviously okay if they haven't held their sports for a few weeks that's there too but Mm-hmm. It, it just made me realize how like you know you, you and it that's in super training too where where it is where Virg touches on that saying that in his block sequence model he's like you should at, like retain the sport technique to a at least a minimum standard because when the organism goes back then it's going to have a bigger physical capacity engine behind which to support its expression of a sports skill. But if you haven't kept some sort of technique attainment throughout that process, it's going to be completely dysregulated and it's going to take more time then to integrate the physical ability with the technical, tactical ability, and then obviously the perceptual cognitive aspect as well. So just so so many things there. But recalibration, Sean, I'd like you to maybe go into that because the big thing that is people coming back from injuries and on Mike Robertson's podcast, he brought up a great point in that Mm -hmm. people like have to go through these landmarks very controlled you know not chaotic when you get this extension and get this amount of strength but there was never this idea of yeah but we're going again back to chaotic environment do they have the affordances will their Mm -hmm. brain allow them to have those affordances to be able to execute what they previously had an affordance for and again like things going back to like the immersion processes and you know their ability to tune previously to how they were and stuff like that. So maybe just recalibration. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. You know, for those out there, for me, I kind of view, uh, there's Claire Michaels and, and, uh, a number of individuals talk about this idea that I've already brought up a few times in regards to the education of attention, the education of intention, Mm -hmm. and then this ability to calibrate this movement skill or this movement solution to face this diversification of problems that we may face. And in this idea of recalibration to me is in regards to the overall movement solution to match the respective problems and, and to sort of touch on an idea that you brought up just a bit before in regards to degeneracy to me, degeneracy precedes dexterity. And uh, when we talk about, say, maybe an injured athlete who is rehabilitating, we're trying to get them, at least for me, finding ways to recalibrate their human movement system based on who they are at that moment in time in the respective constraints, both physical or structural, as well as then functional. Mm. So structural meaning morphology, strength levels, those types of things, but functionality meaning how they interact in a purposeful fashion with the problems that they may face. And that to me, Robbie, is that recalibration process, getting them to attune again to the right aspects of the problem. And, And when I say attune, I'm not just talking about vision when we're talking about perception. We're talking about kinesthesis, so proprioceptive, haptic and touch. All of those things change when an athlete has become injured, right? Mm-hmm. Our affordances for action are the way that we have uh, our abilities to effect our respective environment and the tasks that we face will be constantly changing as well. And so when I get a guy who's, you know, obviously I play or, or train guys who play very violent sport as an American football, we sometimes face certain non-contact injuries or even contact injuries, ACL, MCL, um, you know, obviously Achilles and things like this. Those things affect 
our effectivities. They affect our effectivities. Mm-hmm. And, they, and, and then our ability to interact with our environment and the problems that we face, we have to constantly recalibrate the ability, the human movement system's ability to attune and understand the affordances for action that we may have based on that. And of course, that recalibration process, like you said, I I think something you brought up earlier sort of works here too, that that we might not have been ready for that information at that time or or some aspect of who we are isn't ready for it at that time. Mm. But just because we're not ready for it at that time doesn't mean we shouldn't expose ourselves to it in doses. And that's really what I do with our representative tasks and representative learning environments from our athletes who are in rehabilitation really right from the start. I had a kid kid who uh, uh, just went undrafted in the NFL. He He was going to be a draft pick. Uh, and then he tore his ACL after the third or in the third game of the college football season. And his obviously being a draft pick went to being an undrafted guy, but he went right to work. And within two months, we were literally doing representative tasks and representative environments with a full ACL reconstruction. And to the point now, you know, right after the draft was over, he got picked up. And, and because of that, he had the ability to find his movement solutions and who he was in this nonlinear way to where every day it was sort of doing this. But at the end of the day, we got learning to get to his ultimate recalibration of his performance or of his solutions yeah. on who he is. You'll never be the same once you get a certain experience. And I think that's the reality that we have to get. This is sort of this previously held notion or implication that we have because of generalized motor program and schema ideas to a certain degree that there's going to be some internalized structure in our brain that it's just going to operate and run off of and we got to hit these time uh, or these checkpoints these landmarks and I'm not saying that those things aren't uh, beneficial that we don't have to do them but I think we too often treat that athlete with kid gloves in this process and we don't direct the effort towards what they're going to have to do like you might have mentioned too as well ultimately when it's all said and done if we're going to help them avoid re-injury we have to help them become attuned to who they are again so we have to help them recalibrate to who they are their movement solutions to who they are and maybe they have new movement solutions that are going to emerge because of that injury and that's okay. That's exactly what should happen. Yeah. But we should at least gain um, this degeneracy to dexterity. And in between this degeneracy and dexterity lies this sort of attunement and adaptability, if you want to think about it in that way, to find that attunement to their new affordances for action, connect to what their effectivities are at that moment. And that's going to change. You know, Carl Newell did some great work in regards to timescales for motor learning. And what we find is within really true nonlinear pedagogy type ideas in, in athletes centered in, in an individualistic fashion, it's different individuals learn at different rates, right? We all know that. They adapt at different rates as well. And in this education of attention, education of intention, in this calibration slash recalibration, we're going to find that individuals do that differently along this perceptual motor landscape as well. 
And, uh, you know, I know that I'm rambling again, but on that same token, it really comes down to those three B's that I often talk about, the behaviors, the brain, and the biomechanics, and in the integration of them all, the intertwining of them all. And then, Robbie, not only the study and investigation of them all in a holistic, integrated fashion, but then the acquisition or development of them all throughout the processes that we use in practice. And oftentimes in rehabilitation, shoot, not even just in rehabilitation. I'm not trying to like poke fun at, at rehabilitation specialists because they do a wonderful job. But, but it's all of us in a physical preparation community. We, we often take that organismic asymmetry or biomechanic asymmetry and we forget about the perception and intention or we forget about the behaviors in the brain. And, and, and we're missing a big part of the boat then when we do that. And so we hit these landmarks, but those landmarks are often about uh, physical preparatory means, right? They're often about biomechanics, like this individual has the ability to control themselves in this really closed task. Oh, so now, they've, now that they've checked that box, they can move on. But maybe if we were to have greater behaviors in brain focus or emphasis earlier on in the process, we might get to having them or they might get to having more control of their biomechanics earlier on in the process as well. Just a speculation. So you, you, you kind of jumped forward. My next question was going to be about the three B's, <laughs> brain behavior, biomechanics. But another thing I'd like you to touch on is those five trends. I, I slightly touched on earlier on, but you went in more depth in those in your talk. Yeah. So like these five trends you see in sports skill mastery. So if I'm correct again, they were ownership, optimization, virtuosity, mm-hmm. if I'm pronouncing that right, uh, efficiency yep. and effectiveness. So yes, because I found those to be very, um, like that was a great little topic in your presentation. Yeah, you know, at the end of the day, they sort of all collace into this idea of attunement and adaptability and dexterity, right? Mm-hmm. But when I really tried to investigate sport by sport, uh, those individuals that I would claim to be masters of movement, and, and now that uh, should probably have these quotations around as well, because we're never fully masterful, right? We can just be more masterful or less masterful or or more coordinated, controlled, and organized, or less coordinated, controlled, and organized. Yeah. And because we're always constantly changing in skill, you know, it's constantly evolving, and, it, and it's sort of this, because it's being impacted by transient factors, and it's just, nonlinear in and of itself. Before you go on there, I think the best way to make the point of a transient factor and how it influences your movement at any particular time is when you're drunk. Yeah. When you're drunk, like that profoundly impacts your affordances. You know, I mean, you're yeah. your perception, intention, and action, that coupling and that constant circular causality is being impacted by a, a host of different things, right? Our motivations change when we're drunk, right? Uh, our affordances change when we're drunk. Absolutely. Our attunement, all of it. I, I love that comparison. I've never actually heard that, but I'm going to use that. Uh, I'm glad that you came up with that so I can at least bring it back to you so people are like, wait a minute, how did you come up with this? Because uh, <laughs> I was just saying your perception's way off too when you're drunk because like reality, you're just like, ah, I'll definitely jump that wall. Uh-huh. 
<laughs> so are your, you know, what else is not only are your actions, but your intentions, your, your goals, you know, and I'm not going to bring any examples to light here, but, uh, you know, our goals change when we are as well. <laughs> but uh, I think that's a perfect point. That's a perfect example. And, and really, when I look at these expert movers, Robbie, what I find is those five characteristics. Uh, again, when I think about optimization, it's optimization and authenticity of an individual's movement solutions based on who they are. Mm. So when I talk about optimization, I'm not talking about the acquisition or the attainment of some idealistic technical model. I'm talking about authenticity and who that individual is and how they've optimized. And, and sometimes people hate this word. In fact, Keith Davids called me out on it back at my conference. He's like, Sean, I don't really like the use of the word optimization because sometimes it implies um, that technical model or that idealistic movement pattern. And, and that's not what I'm implying here. I'm implying that we all have our own authenticity, our own authentic movement and signature. There's not one movement signature or solution that works for all of us, but instead it's the movement solution that we find that works for us. Mm. And so that could entail a lot of compensation at times, as long as it fits within a bandwidth of that movement solution at a perception, intention, and action standpoint, I think we're on, on the right track there. So then that kind of leads us into ownership. That individual has the keys to the car, right? When pressure and anxiety and chaos and complexity enter the mix and things like fatigue or emotions and, and motivations play their role, do we have ownership across this entire spectrum. Stu and I, Stu McMillan and I always talk about this as well, is a movement solution cannot be fully actualized until it's been tested under each one of those respective types of, of constraint manipulations, right? Until the athlete has faced fatigue, until the athlete has faced different levels of anxiety and arousal. Do we know if they have ownership of the movement solution under those condition changes? And at, at the end of the day, Robbie, of course, people are kind of probably connecting the dots then to dexterity or the ability to find a movement solution under any condition in any situation. And to me, that's sort of my um, way of saying virtuosity. Virtuosity is having um, the individual's detection and correction of what is happening in the environment and their movement solutions that they're offering in response to the problems that they face. Virtuosity is expert movers having coordination, control, and organization of that uh, sort of performer environment relationship. And you can see the connection. They're not supposed to be distinct. Each one of these qualities and characteristics shouldn't be distinct they are all integrated together. They, they just sort of have distinctions to them that make them what they are. And, and then that's why we find effectiveness and efficiency sort of as these two E's on the, the tail end of that because our movement solutions or masterful movers must have um, effective movement solutions. And in most sports, effective movement solutions come from degeneracy or having multiple solutions to multiple problems or multiple solutions to the same problem as well. Yeah. And then finally, efficiency. You know, if we're going to be able to do this over the long term, both 
uh, in the timescales of one's career, as well as even just in the timescale of the short term of the performance that we're typically going to face, we don't want to just be able to do it one time, but we got to be able to do it as many times as what is required of our sport. And efficiency then sort of sets the tone for that. And so people often blame me or point the finger at me and say, well, you're just standing back and letting self-organization emerge accordingly and not necessarily saying that when a compensation occurs, you're going to change it. That's not completely and entirely true because when a, cons a compensation may lead to injury because it's not efficient or the individual can't perform it rep to rep to rep enough or keep control of it in this more masterful way, then there's certain aspects of that movement solution whether it's perception, intention, or action-oriented, most of the time as a, as a group and as a profession, we orient ourselves around the action, right? We see knee valgus, so we're like, hey, shoot, uh, I got to go change this knee valgus. Well, if it's within the bandwidth of control because that individual is still functionally being able to solve a problem with it, we have to check ourselves before we try to attempt to add value. We got to make sure we're going to add value before we do so. But if it falls outside of that bandwidth, now we must interject because it's not going to be efficient. It doesn't check the box on one of those five characteristics. Mm. So hopefully people don't misunderstand what I'm saying there. When I talk about self-organization, when I talk about authenticity, when I talk about the importance of, uh, of individualistic movement solutions, you know, and again, it's not just about action. I, I, I want to... One thing that I take pride in is, is being as holistic as and integrated about that movement solution as I possibly can be. And, and that's where I talk about those three Bs, of course, between behaviors or perception and attention, um, the brain and the intention and the cognitive decision making that's taking place, uh, or maybe things such as motivation and, and other aspects of intention. And then finally, actions such as the biomechanics. Um, and the calibration of those biomechanics as it relates to those other two beams. Yeah. And so again, I know a mouthful there, but uh, um, those five characteristics I think are vital for us to understand all of our athletes in whatever sport that they, they may play. No, it's 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 beautiful. It's perfect. It's uh, this is going better than I expected. It was like, oh, <laughs> I hope I can organize the conversation enough so we can get like our points across, but. Uh, that's one thing uh, I really did appreciate in your talk. Uh, and uh, we're, we're really uh, a Stuby delighted. Yes, keep saying all the 360, but all the 360, <laughs> all the 360 is phenomenal resource. The amount of information that and like oh. world class information, unbelievable. But in your presentation, like you and you could see it's nearly a, it's 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 almost gotten to nearly like a, a head against the wall type thing for mm -hmm. you. You were like, I'm not saying to abandon a technical model. All I'm saying is that there is a bandwidth within that technical model for each individual. Mm -hmm. And I think going back to, I gave the example of being drunk to, 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 to use that as an analogy for forces. I love the analogy you gave about uh, bandwidth and, te and um, technical models. And you said, it's just like, it's like your signature. It's like handwriting. Like, yeah. it, like there's the alphabet, but we all write it differently. And it's like, yeah. so the alphabet's your technical model, but how you write individually, your, your style of writing, that's your, that's your signature. That's that's the bandwidth within the technical model that you use to solve your movement problems. So, uh, like uh, I, I I like I appreciate that you were always trying to get that across. It there like there there is a technical model, but there's a bandwidth. There's individuality to it. But just a few things uh, you got me thinking about there. 
in terms of um you know movement solving it it's almost a form of you know creativity you know creative yeah. expression and uh creativity is something else i'm fascinated with and i've said this on multiple other podcasts whether it was on my own or if i was getting interviewed or conversations with other people but jack white from the white stripes he's one of like my favorite musicians and um like so if you don't really know jack white a lot of people wouldn't understand why but the, there's a great interview with Jack White all about creativity and there's another author a guy called Joseph Shilton Pierce who wrote an awful lot on like creativity and spiritual development and like you know how we learn from childhood and, and our like mm-hmm. our early life experiences and reptilian brain versus limbic system versus cortex and frontal lobes and all that brain development human psychology human psychology human behavior but those two individuals now uh, would have big sort of impacts on me and in Shilton Pierce's book he spoke about the creative process and creator creative dynamic and that he's like you know the universe basically is this untapped energy potential and it's the creator some people call it god and he's like but you're the creative you you're the muse that brings that that uh undifferentiated energy and then you 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 formulate something within you to mm-hmm. put something tangible into the world so if you're a chef it's a meal if you're an artist it's a painting if you're a poet it's a poem if it's a coach it's a facilitating a cue so that an athlete get to better performance it's something like that something that fulfills you it's your fulfillment it's your heaven on earth so for jack white it's music and jack white talks about the struggle the constraints that he always puts on so for instance he says like he he always went out on stage with no playlist so like if you're talking let's say about a, a, a free throw every time it's the same it's the same it's not the same degeneracy it's different same. every time mm-hmm. you're using a, a slightly different um solution for the problem and jack white is the same then for creativity comes to music he's like he was like he he would he like play the same guitar but he would have the strings more different he would every night he so he tried to put more his constraints with the white stripes was this he could only wear three colors on stage he could only have meg playing the most rudiment drums he could only ever have three things going at once so vocals drums and one music piece be a piano or or the guitar and he was like, what can I create from these constraints? Yeah. So, and then that was how he came forward with solutions to problems. So the interviews, the interviews were great. He's like, every night I tried to put the piano just half an inch further away. Every day. He's like, that's repetition without repetition. Exactly. And then people are yeah. like, why do you play such shitty guitars? He's like, because I have to solve a problem in the moment. And so oh, I love it. John, there, there's videos of Jack White, right? And he's live, middle of state. This, like, these are live concerts. Mm-hmm. And he's, this is why I love it. I'm getting tingles even when I think about it. I'm, like, <laughs> I'm going to watch it this evening. There's, there's one from, it's called uh, Under Nova Scotia Lights up in Canada, live, voice drives. And he's playing one of his signature uh, songs called Dead Letter. And he's in the middle of the solo and the string breaks. And like, he's as cool as a cucumber. In- yeah. Because dexterity, because adaptability, because of attunement, right? Unbelievable, right? But the the beauty in this is, is that while that's beautiful, say, for an individual athlete in, let's say, a tennis game, or he has to coordinate that in the moment with Meg on the drums. She has to attune to it, too. So, like, the string goes, and you see him, he just looks at her, like, and it's nice, and no one panics. He just, like... So he still had about like a minute, two minutes to go on the, the usual solo. And also, oh, yeah. but he looked at her as it, and you could just tell instantly, he just, he just said, we got to wrap it up. But in, in a nice way, he's like, we got we to finish this baby out right now. And he just beautifully, boom, 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 done. 
string gone. Your man comes out on stage, the guy, like, one whoever takes the guitar, goes off, restrings it. But I'm just like, that is mastery. That yeah, is that's expertise. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and it's just and that's ownership, too, because you're not dependent on, on some respective aspect of your solution because you're just responding and connecting and having this constant circular relationship with the problem. Yep. The problem was the guitar, and then what the problem offered was the string breaking. And that's why he always went on stage with no playlist, because he says that going on stage with a place to him was like robbing people. He said, I couldn't think of anything more boring than going out and doing that. So he just, and I was just like, this is so beautiful. And it just makes me think of, you know, this, this like dynamic, non-linear. Yeah. It's just like, and he coming up, he was coming up with creative solutions on the spot. Because other times, Sushan, his guitar would break. And he'd, and he'd stay play, he would stay playing the same song, but he'd just transition to the piano. And he'd make it, he'd wow. make it, look, he'd make it look like that, oh, this was, this, I was always going to go to the piano with this. And it was just like, no. Yeah. Like, and there's loads of times like he just like would have to, there's, in that Nova Scotia Lights one too, he's just riffing on the piano and he's just waiting for his guitar to come back. And he's just like, we just got to keep going with this. And he just keeps going. And he has the crowd going. It's just like, that is just mastery, man. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it really is. I, I love that, too. You know, I always say that, you know, movement is not something you do. It's something you are, right? And it sounds like that's exactly what he's uh, responding with as well. Like, that's sort of how he embodies and owns that. You know, that's really embodied perception, embodied cognition, and embodied skill. Yeah. You know, to be that attuned, that connected to um, this really intimate relationship between the solutions that you have at that moment and, and how you explore that in creative ways. I think sometimes, you know, as, as practitioners, we're not so much facilitating and then we rob athletes of that. I, myself included, that was what my second Robert Frost moment came from, you know, I mean, because I was robbing athletes of that creativity because I said, here's this other expert, you know, like, shoot, man, I've had some pretty good running backs throughout the years. None of them have been Barry Sanders. You know, you look over right over my shoulder, like that's sort of my uh, individual that I connect with in American football. And it's not because of, the way he moved, but it's how he approached the movement that I, that I really connect to, you know, and, and that for me, I used to make running backs, uh, you know, here, we're going to do it this way because Barry Sanders had these solutions. Well, there's only been one Barry Sanders, you know, at any given time, there's, there's still only one. And uh, why would I try to fit them into that model of what Barry Sanders was or who he is? And, and it sounds like a very similar situation to here. You know, you're, you're approaching the, the song or with a certain limited playlist, and it's not really limited. In fact, because of its limitation, it now has bigger affordances. There's a bigger space. That perceptual motor workspace is you yourself interacting with it. Man, I, I love that. I, I was unfamiliar with that story, but I'm going to have to look it up after this. It's so funny you mentioned that. I'll, I'll try and send this to you if I can. I, I could probably Dropbox it, but there's a great documentary called It, it Might Get Loud, and it's about Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin, Jack, okay. White, Jack White, and The Edge. So three unbelievable guitarists. And one of the beautiful things they do in that is the complete like contrast between the edge and Jack White. So you see the edge and like automatically I'm thinking now explicit dependent. Cause mm -hmm. like he, he's like all about technology, all about like really fine guitars. Everything's nice and as certain as can be. And it just shows the edge in Dublin in the studio. And he's like, listen to this chord. 
and it's like just just like a, a not nothing great, just a regular chord. And he's like, but now listen to it when I put all this technology to it, and it's like, bam, bam, bam. But him, that that was still create. That was his form of creativity. Right. The very next scene is Jack White, Tennessee, America, some rundown dump of a place. He's driving this old banger of a car. And he just, <laughs> his, first, his first sentence, this is right after the edge of his first sentence is, I hate technology. It, <laughs> he, goes, he goes, I hate technology. It destroys creativity. And he's like, too, yeah. much, too much opportunity destroys creativity. And then it just shows him uh, walking into this old rundown house. And then he explains why he plays crummy guitars. But the very start of the documentary too, you'll actually get this on YouTube. It's amazing. It's just Jack White with this piece of wood, like this, with a piece of wood, like that. And he has a hammer and a nail and a string and a Coke bottle and a, and a, and a and what do you call the thing, a, a speaker. But it's not, what do you call the things? Like the input. Amp, the amp, 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 <laughs> amp, there you an go. Amplifier, right? And he's got a little thing, an amplifier, like, you know, that he puts onto the wood. But he's just rotten piece of wood, hammers it all, puts it all together. So it's like, it's like one string with a Coke bottle underneath and the amplifier piece, and he plugs it into the amp. And then he just picks up, and he's there smoking a fag, and he and he just gets a he gets a a pick, and he just starts playing with this one string, and it just sounds like a guitar, like bow 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 now now bow bow. Oh wow! And it sounds unbelievable, right? Like if you had your eyes closed, you'd be like, "Who's riffing on a guitar?" And it's just this like crummy piece of shit he made, and then uh-huh. he just, just there picks up the fag, and goes, "Who said you need the guitar?" And that's the, that's the documentary, and it's just unbelievable. But I have one final thing I just want to say to you, and then we'll just get into some quick fire questions and I'll let you go. Now, do you need to get up or stretch or go? No, I'm 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 golden, my friend. I'm golden, and I and I have a feeling this might end up. Uh, we might end up carrying on this conversation uh, more than more than one uh, or second part here. I'm guessing. Yes, sir, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you know, so this is uh, this is what I live for. Moms like this. This is what fulfills me. But but uh, just, we've, we've spoken about the coach being a facilitator. And it's another thing I've meditated on. And it actually came from Kierwin on Flat, who said this great, he said this great phrase. He goes, the best thing sometimes we as coaches can do, and he actually swore on this. He goes, the best thing we can do is to fuck off. Basically, like, to step away and leave you out alone. And what, what I, what I, and I used to do this, and probably you did at some stage, and it could have been subconscious. But what, what I think, what I think is the reason why coaches interfere I think it's an ego thing. So let me explain. When, an, when, a coach, when a coach's athlete or client or patient is not doing what they're asking them to do, subconsciously they're thinking that they're making me look bad. It's reflective I, of my craft, yes. Yeah, I must interject. Like it's, it's almost like an effect on their egos. Like, oh, they're making me look bad. Like if one of my peers walked in and saw this athlete who I'm coaching perform the exercise like that, I would be mortified. Like I would be embarrassed mm. rather than thinking like, no, no, you're a facilitator to help this individual solve this problem yes. and, and, and find their way and their path to mastery. It's nothing got to do with you. You are purely just a facilitator. That was something too that, you know, I learned in my journey because there was times I can even reflect back to when I was coaching. And actually the, the one standout moment for me, Sean, was I was in the gym one day coaching a guy and my sister happened to be there training at the same time. And only later that evening, she pulled me up on it. And it's something I, I actually do need to thank her for. She basically said, you were, a, you were an asshole to that guy here on today. And I, I was like, well, I was just coaching him. Yeah, he just he couldn't get into position. And I was just like, and she was like, no, you were really like, 
you know, you, you were like sharp and like, she was like, cause normally you're not like maybe, you know, and again, this goes back to transient factor. Maybe my blood sugar was low. Maybe he was my eight client that day. Yeah. So, there's a number of a whole host of factors, right? Like, but I yeah. think that's definitely one area of why coaches feel they need. It's like, I need to show my self-worth. I must interject particularly mm-hmm. too when it's in more of a, a, a disciplinary team approach, like in a pro sport thing where it's like, you nearly get this game of one ultimateship. Well, I have to have my bit because I need to show my self-worth. And really, the best thing you can do sometimes is like to step back and you let, got it. Let, let them discover. So that was just something I was thinking of. If you've anything to add to that, feel free. Yeah, you, you know, for me, Robbie, at my conference uh, three weeks ago at the Sport Movement Skill Conference, I, I did a two-hour session to, to start things. And... My athletes who came, uh, you know, were my individuals who were my participants, all of a sudden there was, uh, you know, probably 85 of the 100 attendees or delegates and participants in the room. And it was sort of our pre-conference, so I didn't know exactly how many people we were going to get to come there. Turns out that people wanted to see this more than I had anticipated. And, of course, all of a sudden I had to adapt and adjust everything. My my individuals who are going to be my demonstrating athletes, they were like, well, what do you want us to do? I'm like, just adapt, just go on the fly. And they're like, what in the world? I'm like, well, we're going to embrace adaptability as the entire um, theme of the weekend. We're going to start it right here, right now. So all of a sudden I just started manipulating constraints and forcing them to do different things, a repetition without repetition, representative learning type tasks. And, of course, they were making mistakes everywhere. And in my guys or individuals who spend any time around me um, sort of know that, that we crave mistakes. We, we, what motivates us is the mistakes expose us to certain gaps within our movement skills. And, and I've started to sort of adopt that same philosophy and idea with my own movement craft as well. So when I make mistakes or I don't communicate correctly or I don't, manipulate the constraints accordingly to get or emerge, uh, facilitate, if you will, the right movement solution in that problem. I'm like, well, I guess at least I know that there's a gap within my movement specialist skill set, if you will. And uh, the more that we can get to the point where we step back and be okay with whatever happens there, of course, not saying that we subject our athletes to danger or risk or those types of things. Of course, there's always risk, but on the same token, we're not asking them to do something dangerous. But there's times where I think we should open up the movement problem a little bit and just say, you know what, I'm going to try this. I'm going to go from having this really confined space to this really open space and see what happens with the, you know, the way that they interact with that problem. And I think then you will be able to continually start to change these constraints to sort of accommodate these respective solutions and see how the athlete adapts themselves. And they get so comfortable being uncomfortable that now when I do things and I restrict it or I talk too much explicitly because I'm looking to control because I want to prove my worth, my athletes will actually sometimes say like, okay, shut up. Like, you know, I have NFL players that will be like, Sean, stop. Like, I get it. I understand it, you know, or, or can we open it up and do more repetition without repetition? And of course, you know, then my heart just glows and beats out of my chest when they say that, you know, because I realize then I believe that I'm doing something right, that I'm, I'm allowing them to truly own that attunement and adaptation. And they're telling me where to go. And they're kind of nudging me on what's going to be best for, uh, for them. 
staying with the theme of adaptability, I've had to move spots because the iPhone cord is only two and a half feet or whatever it is. And I'm now plugged into the wall here over uh, next to the window. But uh, it's all about adaptability, right? Dexterity, finding any movement solution to any uh, problem in any condition. I tell you what, for the sake of your spine and pelvis and just your own sanity and physical being your body, we'll, we'll keep it shorter now and wrap up. So <laughs> this is definitely going to be only part part one of a multiple series that we're going to get in because this is just phenomenal as I was I had an interview with a very good friend of mine Danny Lennon who has the the podcast Sigma Nutrition one of the top nutrition podcasts out there over two million downloads and I know Danny well fellow Irishman and like I was just saying to Danny like you know like this is this is what fulfills me conversations like this so like I like absolutely after this, after this like you know we hang up I'm just gonna be like buzzing and just like I'm gonna go to the park now and read a book but I'll just be like buzzing and I'll probably call them to my parents and say, oh, great talk with this guy, Sean Miskin. And they'll just be like, that's really nice. But, uh, God, just, just wrapping up here. So, I mean, oh, it's, there's, and there's such other stuff like I want to talk about, like getting more to augmented feedback, observational learning, but that's representative design. Really would like to talk more about that guy with the ACL, like how does that actually look? And maybe more so practical examples. But we'll get, that's more fuel for the fire for the next day. So, no just, doubt. Just just wrapping up a few little quick fire ones for you. What would you say have been the biggest lessons you've learned so far in your life and career? And, I, and they, they, if if they're still within the skill acquisition realm, that's fine. But if if it's anything else outside of that, it's fair, fair game. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question and one that obviously we have to to I think all be responsible for constant reflection of. Uh, I think some of it is, is of course, because of how engrossed uh, my life is with movement and movement skill. It, it to me, still revolves around uh, some of the ideas that I've already shared to, to be able to give over control and to trust the authenticity of others, to respect who it is that they are, what it is that they bring to the table, realize that they may be different than me, uh, or even if they are a master in their own right and in their domain, to be able to figure out that I can learn something from them and hopefully they can learn something from me and, and we can all uh, sort of go down this path together. So my athletes included, but as well as in life as a whole, I, I think that's something that we all need to sort of uh, come to common ground with, to realize that just because I may disagree with some uh, how someone goes about something or, or, or accomplish something in some way, um, we all are passionate, we all have our own special sauce and, uh, you know, it's obviously our God-given right to go down that path and explore it with our own uh, passion and our energy and our individuality. Uh, so whether it's in regards to movement or whether it's in regards to what someone uh, is energetic about, um, they're energetic and passionate about it for a reason. So uh, the same thing goes with my athletes, you know, to, to trust what they see, hear, feel, and think about something and to... Uh, not only trust that, but respect it and try to harness it accordingly as well. Mm, sweet. Great stuff. What would you say is your top advice to everyone who's watching and listening? So top life advice. Oh, top life advice. Um, I, I would say probably try to find what really makes you tick, you know, kind of taking off of that, which what um, we just talked about 
figuring out what your special sauce is, you know, uh, like you said, uh, you and I are both good, even if no one listens to this podcast, which, you know, once I was talking long enough, they probably shut it off long ago. But, uh, you know, you and I are, are engaged because of that, which what we share is our common ground, right? Realize and understand and, and try to figure out, peel back the layers on yourself and who you are and where your own passion and, and energy is and exists. And be okay with that. And uh, realize that none of us are going to come up with all the answers, um, you know, myself included, even though every day I lose more and more hair thinking I'm going to, to get to that point or get a step closer to doing exactly that. But, uh, you know, be okay with that and, and be authentic with that. Be true with that. And uh, be grateful for that because th there's something that we all have to contribute for. There's a reason why I start um, every one of my presentations with uh, a quote from Bruce Lee that says, uh, absorb what is useful, discard what is not, and add what is uniquely your own. And, and I think that whole add what is uniquely your own piece um, is something that we often forget. We see someone who's an expert in a respective domain, and we try to absorb what, what they've done and who they are and, and what advice they're giving us. That's wonderful. Yeah. Then we have those individuals that um, we discard what we don't feel is useful. Again, we should do that as well, but I think the piece that we often forget is, is add what is uniquely our own, and I think that applies to everything, whether it's something like continuing education as we both dive into these topics or whether it's something like just something outside of, of our craft. You know, be who you are and, and be that unique self because obviously it was, it was done for a reason. Great stuff, great stuff. What would your top resources be to all the listeners? And again, this doesn't just have to pertain to all the topics we've discussed so far. Like it could be anything, like it could be a self-development course, <laughs> a book, an online course. It could be an individual um, what would your top resource be to help improve people's coaching and lives? Yeah, you know, within the craft, I don't think it'll come as any shock or surprise that anything by Nikolai Bernstein is something that to improve you and your craft, every performance professional, performance enhancement professional, every, every movement skill acquisition coach, anyone who deals with athletes in their movement and any way shape or form whether you agree with it or disagree with it um, in the thought processes that he takes um, I would implore everyone to pick up anything by Bernstein or just as it dives into it and attempts to uncover and unlayer some of these ideas so um, I think you'll see that he wasn't that far off and he was asking questions and attempting to come up with answers to mm -hmm. questions that we still have today about sport movement behavior and shoot, about movement behavior as a whole, because realize that uh, many of your listeners out there probably aren't even training athletes for sport. They might be just rehabilitation specialists, and I say just rehabilitation specialists. I don't mean it like that. I mean, you might be a, a personal trainer. You may be a sports scientist. You might be someone who's training general population. We all move, and, and the thing is, if we all move, we maul us maul investigate movement more deeply and attempt to uh, come to common ground in how we understand it and what we feel about its development and acquisition. So, of course, I live and breathe and die by movement and, and the understanding of it and, and what really drives me day to day because I'm so far away from having the answers. But I believe that it holds more keys um, to me and being able to understand it and I believe our whole profession as a whole. 
So I would say uh, first and foremost, right then and there, um, is is being able to dive into those things that sometimes are a little bit more complex than we give them credit for uh, because sport movement or movement as a whole within our environment and when we throw the tasks that we face in there um, gets pretty complex pretty damn quickly. So um, anything by Bernstein, uh, if anyone out there is implored by some of these ideas in ecological dynamics, um, nonlinear pedagogy and skill acquisition in sport by David's and others, I think is the other one that, as I told you off air earlier, is sort of my uh, go-to recommendation reference right now for all the individuals in the profession. And I believe, yeah, I knew you were going to come up with it. I knew you had it handy. Uh, so I didn't have to turn around and try to, to perform some degenerous <laughs> movement here to try and reach my uh, bookshelf that is a few feet away from me now uh, in comparison. So, so those would be where I would direct um, most listeners out there if, if they found any uh, interest in anything that we talked about today. Sweet, sweet. Okay, so uh, for whatever reason, you've just got 365 days left on this planet. What are you going to okay. do? What, what are you going to do with those, those 365 days? Oh, wow. Okay. That's a question that I've, you know, some of these podcasts, you know, of course get uh, somewhat uh, reoccurring themes. That's definitely not one that I've been uh, uh, implored to answer in the past. So I like it. Um, I, I would say, uh, obviously I would try to do the whole uh, cliche, you know, idea of trying to love more and be more grateful and all those things you know uh luckily i i literally have that tattooed across my chest already so hopefully i live that way day to day whether i have 365 left or 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 i already have um you know many more passes around the sun than that yeah. so for me i would just continue to uh spend time obviously with my loved ones more and more than i probably already do uh simply because you know, movement and, and understanding it in the National Football League level is something that I'm extraordinarily passionate about. I, I would continue to spend my time accordingly between those uh, things, and I'd probably spend a little less time on Twitter uh, than I do. Uh, even during the NFL season, I'd still watch the same amount of football as I do, and I'd still uh, talk about movement as much as I do, but I'd probably spend a little less time getting in some of the meaningless arguments that aren't going to go anywhere uh, that people sometimes notoriously know me for. Um, you know, I would probably spend the, the equal amount of time ranting and raving about the bullshit nature of agility ladders, but that's just simply because I'm somewhat stubborn um, and, and can't be swayed across my ways that way. But uh, I, I'd probably spend a little less time in the social media realm than what I currently do. Great stuff. What book or books are you currently reading right now, if you are? Or what reading material are you going through? And what's the one book you would give away as a present? Oh, okay. Um, I would probably give away uh, to any and everyone I know, uh, Coordination and Regulation of Movement uh, by Nikolai Bernstein, which people would be very excited if I were to do that so yeah. they didn't have to pay the... Um, you know, upwards to a couple thousand dollars for it on Amazon. Uh, because again, that one changed my life and my craft. And, and I know I'm making it very dramatic to say that it changed my life, but it, it truly did for, for anyone that saw the way that I thought before and, and, and uh, knows and understands how I think about things now and how I approach my athletes preparation and development, they will know why it changed me in those ways. Um, 
the book that I'm currently reading, uh, believe it or not, is I'm re-going through Dexterity and its development as, as, as we speak. And I know that I mentioned this on Mike's podcast, but every year I reread. Um, yeah, I'm now up to six or seven times. Uh, and it, it, uh, I haven't taken a tally, but like you with highlighters, um, I don't know if there's anything more left to highlight. So I've actually gotten to the point where I'm taking notes with each one of those books now. I love that. <laughs> I love that. I have, if I could move further than what my iPhone cord would allow, I would show you the post-it notes and the dry erase board that is stuck all over my desk um, yeah. and above it based on the notes that I'm rewriting from the multiple times of rereading each of those. And, and I know that sometimes that seems weird because people are like, why don't you branch out? In fact, Stu McMillan was the first one. And Stu is getting way too many mentions today for his own good, by the way. Um, I feel like he should probably start paying for me for, for promoting him. We'll cut all these out. I'll tell my, uh, my production team. Perfect. Just start bleeping it out like the NFL does to me when my players mention me or thank me uh, on air live and they just bleep out my name. Uh, because they don't want it, uh, you know, that self-promotion, that shameless plug thrown out there. Um, who, who is this bleep McMillan? Yeah, who is this bleep guy, bleep McMillan? Uh, trust me, I refer to him as bleep McMillan more than, uh, more than uh, you know, but uh, he definitely knows. But Stu implored me a number of years back to read things um, outside of the domain and the discipline, and I've tried to do that more and more. Um, but yet I continue to find myself towards some of these reoccurring questions that I probably should do more of that, which is read outside of the discipline. But on the same token, these books are sort of the gift that give, keeps on giving for me because every year when I face dexterity in its development or coordination and regulation of movements, or, or I think in the future about books such as uh, Dynamics of Skill Acquisition by David's Benton and Bunnett, mm. or, uh, or Button and Bennett, excuse me, my, my uh, words sort of got mumbled together there, uh, or Nonlinear Pedagogy and Skill Acquisition, I believe that these resources are probably going to be like that as well, yeah. to where I come at them with a new understanding, or hopefully I do. And when I come at them with new understanding, hopefully I have new questions as well as a few more answers, but probably more new questions. And uh, hopefully I'll be able to experience it and understand it and take it in at a different level as well at that time. Sweet. So that's why I reread those so frequently. Yeah, there it is. Uh, so that was one like what you said earlier, you probably weren't ready uh, for what it was going to present to you the very first time you read it because that book was from 2008. Uh, I remember reading it, and I believe in 2012, it was one of the very first that I picked up during my second Robert Frost moment, and uh, I didn't, you know, it was so eye-opening because it kept essentially calling me out for what I was doing and how I was doing it, and then presenting an alternative viewpoint towards understanding things, an alternative lens, if you will, and how I should look at sport movement behavior, and, and it definitely changed my world, so anyone who you know, I think it's pretty well read at this point, but on the same token, anyone who hasn't seen it or anyone who's even just slightly excited about anything that, that you and I have talked about today, my friend, I would implore everyone to pick it up or go grab it. 
Slightly excited. Slightly excited. I feel like we, you and I, may be more excited than the rest, but that's okay too. Uh, as I always say about, I said this about my own movement conference. I said I might actually be investing in something that only I'm going to be excited to sit in the audience and listen about, but at least I'm excited, so I'm investing it there anyway. We're like those comedians who tell jokes just for our own benefit. Do you ever see that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, most of our information that we shared might may, may actually fit that billing. Hopefully we gave uh, a few nuggets in between as well that people will be able to find some uh, connection to. Great. This is, this is the very last question. This is the qu- last question I finish every show on. So I'm over in uh, it's Minnesota. That's where your base is. It? Yes, yes, sir. So you don't want to be here, but but you can come. <laughs> so I'm over in Minnesota, and I uh, hook up with you. So I, I say, Sean, I'm in town, and I want to bring it to dinner, and uh, have my magical powers with me. And you're like, what do you mean? It's like I can bring dead people back to life. Okay. Say, We're gonna go to dinner, and you can invite five people, any five people, to this dinner, dead or alive. Who are you gonna bring to this dinner, and why? Oh, I like it. Okay. Um, I think one, probably, again, no shock or surprise would be Nikolai Bernstein for obvious reasons. So I won't, uh, you know, I won't uh, unlayer as to why that would be the case. But um, just to, to maybe present certain ideas that I have off of the works that I've read of his, I think would be fascinating to sort of explore um, basically how uh, dumb I really am and how dumb he could make me feel. Uh, I would take uh, two individuals from my sport, uh, Barry Sanders and, and uh, maybe Deion Sanders, two individuals who are known for different things. Uh, Barry Sanders being highly adaptable, uh, you know, the most dexterous mover I've ever seen within my sport. And of course, that's highly subjective. That's highly qualitative just based on my analysis. Mm. Uh, a guy who retired uh, before I started training athletes uh, really as intimately as I do now. But to hear the way that he may view uh, the movement problems that he faced, maybe just to sit and watch his film uh, would be something that um, would be fascinating to me because, uh, you know, I, I love even some of the perspectives that he shares now when he talks about how he was solving problems in that regard. And I would bring a Deion Sanders, uh, somebody like that who relied on physical qualities and characteristics, just to sort of give the, the opposite of Barry's view, you know, they're not related, even though their last names are Sanders. Yeah. Um, Dion was often known for sort of out there improvising, but improvising based on his speed and his physical qualities, his explosiveness and his qualities that were sort of second to none, sort of a Bo Jackson type of uh, mover, as opposed to Barry didn't really have those physical qualities and traits. He was more about adaptability, of course, and perception and tension and action, I think, a little bit more. But to sort of compare and contrast those things, I think, would be fascinating, even though they played different positions just to see how they approach their, their perceptual motor landscape, their perceptual motor workspace, their problems and solution connection, I think would be fascinating to me. And um, so that would be three. Uh, the other two, I, I think, would be uh, sets of grandparents that um, I didn't, because I was a, an oops baby, uh, because I was a mistake, uh, I didn't uh, um, know my grandparents nearly as well as that which what, um, I would have liked to. So I would like to be able to uh, 
um, you know, just have conversations with them, learn from them, um, discuss things with them, um, talk about their integrity and their value and who they were uh, a little bit more, just simply because I didn't get that time uh, or I wasn't old enough uh, at times before they passed. Sweet, man. That's absolutely amazing. Sean, this has been incredible. So I've I thoroughly enjoyed this interview. Possibly one of my favorite ones I've done. And uh, I've done a lot of interviews, man. I, I'm like, <laughs> I've done like uh, I'm close to two hundred right now. So. Oh, wow. Okay. I'll I'll definitely take that and and take all of that that uh, favor and all those words that you possibly can give me. I'll absorb them all. I'll soak them all up. <laughs> That's great. So listen for all the viewers and the listeners. Thanks so much. Um, this probably may end up be may end up being a two-parter because it was like so long and so uh, information dense go figure we'll see we'll see what the production team think so uh for everyone who's viewing uh thanks a million make sure you subscribe to us on our youtube channel and for everyone listening make sure you subscribe to us on whatever podcast app you do and leave a rating review because it's going to get this podcast out to the masses so sean listen thanks so much if you have any closing words oh sorry where can people find out find out more about you oh yeah okay um Give us your website, give us your Twitter. Uh, and also, also from the Mike Rossman podcast, I believe there is a book in the works. So just tell us about any upcoming projects and obviously your contact information. Yeah, there is a book in the works and, and it was supposed to be done last year, but you know how that goes. Uh, it will be a, a sport movement skill acquisition book, uh, sort of synthesizing some of my ideas. Um, try to bridge the gap, if you will, between the science and the arts that kind of exist within the movement studies and sciences, specifically in regards to sport movement behavior and some of the topics and ideas that we've discussed, um, and maybe some of them that we might discuss in the future, because I have a feeling we're going to connect in the future as well to do something similar as we did today. So at some point here in 2018, I'm hoping that that will finally be released, number one. Uh, number two, um, people can find me uh, on Twitter. I am pretty uh, interactive with people. Uh, I love to talk about anything sport movement related, obviously, as those listeners can tell. You can find me at uh, Movement Miyagi. Uh, so people will be able to find me there uh, and connect with me there. Um, on that same token and note, I do have a YouTube channel that is full of uh, free information, uh, free uh, content. Um, I'm in the process of uh, putting together this next batch of, of probably 40 or 50 videos that I think should go on there and be uploaded. Mm-hmm. So I'm about to kind of do a mass loading there of some of these topics where it's just me sitting and talking and discussing and uncovering and unlayering some of these concepts. So Please. if you type in Sean Mishka, uh, M-Y-S-Z-K-A, uh, at, uh, on YouTube, you should be able to find my channel. Uh, I do also have a content development site at optimizemovement.com, and people can also uh, sort of see me discuss or, or read my thoughts as I discuss uh, some of these ecological dynamics ideas at uh, footballbeyondthestats.wordpress.com. Uh, World's longest URL, as I always tell people, because they're like, wait a minute, what, huh? Uh, it's only because I don't pay like the, the $50 a year or whatever to no, WordPress, so I got to have the free one. I don't know. It's something ridiculous, and I'm just way too stubborn to do it, even though I probably should. So, um, you know, I break down a play a week, uh, an American football play per week, using these ideas um, in an integrative fashion at that site so people can can find me there but my friend uh, i know that with this has been a little long time coming 
Uh, but I'm glad that we finally made it happen. It was, like you said, way better than I had even anticipated, and I was already super psyched uh, to make it happen. So thank you for all you are doing. The pleasure uh, is definitely all mine, and uh, I can't wait to talk again. Oh, absolutely. Sean, thanks for that. All that will be in the show notes, everything Sean mentioned. So his Twitter, his website, his blog. Uh, when the upcoming book comes, that'll definitely, we'll, do, we'll be doing a podcast on that for sure. So Love it. Yeah, for everyone watching, everyone listening, that's the end of this episode. Uh, from me, Robbie Burke, and from Sean Mishka, take care, and I'll talk to everyone soon. Peace.